Hey guys, and welcome to Grow Series, an MCAT review podcast. In this fourth episode of the biology section here, we'll be talking about the digestive system. And as I usually say, this is a passive supplemental form of content. Make sure you take your main form of content from textbooks or whatever you usually you know, study with. So in this episode, we'll be talking about, like I said, the digestive system. We'll be going over different topics like the different forms of digestion, the small intestine, the large intestine, the pancreas, liver, and all the trillions of hormones and enzymes involved, especially at the duodenum. So let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. The digestive system involves, surprise, digestion. This is the breakdown of food into organic molecules. Starches and carbohydrates become polysaccharides. Lipids become fatty acids and glycerol. Proteins become amino acids. Now, there's two different ways we digest food, and there's two different ways of digestion. So the two different ways we digest food is mechanical digestion and chemical digestion. In mechanical digestion, we physically break down those large food particles into smaller ones. So, you know, when you're chewing, you're mechanically digesting something. The second way of digesting, like I said, is chemical, and that's the enzymatic cleavage of chemical bonds. So that's the nitty gritty, the actual breakdown of a carbohydrate to a polysaccharide. That's chemical digestion. So those are the two ways of digestion. There's also two processes of digestion, intracellular and extracellular. So intracellular digestion involves oxidation of glucose and fatty acids into energy. So that's metabolism. You know, you basically break down glucose and fatty acids for energy, and that's what intracellular is. So when we say metabolism, we're thinking all the intracellular digestion that's going on. Extracellular digestion involves obtaining nutrients from food, and that really happens in the lumen of the alimentary canal. So what is the alimentary canal? It's outside of the cell and it runs from the mouth to the anus. The alimentary canal is actually considered external to the body. It's basically a tunnel that goes from your mouth to your booty. So like just like we don't consider a tunnel through a mountain to be a part of the mountain, we don't consider the alimentary canal as intracellular. It's therefore extracellular digestion. Now, let me give you guys the tour of the digestive tract. We start with the oral cavity, aka your mouth, then we move on to the pharynx, the esophagus, the stomach, and the small intestine. A good mnemonic for that is ordinary people eat sugary sweets. Oral cavity is O, pharynx is P, esophagus is E, stomach is S, and small intestine is S. Ordinary people eat sugary sweets. Heads up though, there are a few co-stars to the show, the pancreas, the liver, and the gallbladder, and of course the salivary glands. They all bring some enzymes into that process and help digest food. And there's another co-star with digestion, and it's the homies that get the stuff moving. That's called the enteric nervous system. And you might be confused, like, what does the nervous system have to do with the digestive system? Well, there are 100 million neurons in the enteric nervous system that help with the function of digestion. They trigger peristalsis, which is the rhythmic moving of the walls of the digestive tract, and this is regulated through the autonomic nervous system, but it's independent of the brain and spinal cord. Remember, the autonomic nervous system is used for things like breathing, things you really don't think about. So the digestion of food, although it's the nervous system, is also something we don't think about. It's automatic. So we digested the food, now it's time to absorb it. Absorption is transporting products of digestion from the digestive tract and moving it into the circulatory system where it can be used. 
All right, so at this point, we have a few key words we have to know. Digestion is the breakdown of food to its organic molecules. Mechanical digestion is the physical breakdown, like chewing. Chemical digestion is the enzymatic cleavage of chemical bonds. Intracellular digestion is oxidizing glucose and fatty acids for energy. And extracellular digestion is getting nutrients from food. Think like vitamin B12 through the lumen of the alimentary canal. Then we have the digestive tract. We talked about the ordinary people eat sugary sweets, mnemonic, oral cavity, pharynx, esophagus, stomach, and small intestine. The enteric nervous system, which gets food moving down through the digestive system. And then we had absorption, transport of digested products into the circulatory system. Now that we covered the broad basics, let's get our hands dirty and jump into these nitty gritty details. If you're interested in the digestive system and want to become a GI doc, though, getting your hands dirty is an everyday occasion. So I'm going to say the mnemonic we talked about before one more time. Ordinary people eat sugary sweets, oral cavity, pharynx, esophagus, stomach, and small intestine. I'm going to jump into the details of that process. Let's start with the oral cavity. Here we have mechanical digestion in your mouth, your teeth, your tongue. They all are breaking things down. So what's the point? Well, if we can increase the surface area of food at this point, you know, at the start of the process, then it allows for quicker enzymatic digestion. So at the mouth, we're doing both mechanical and chemical digestion. The chemical digestion is through saliva made by salivary glands. These salivary glands moisten and lubricate the food and have enzymes that break down certain foods. Amylase, for example, breaks down starch into smaller sugars, while lipase catalyzes the hydrolysis of lipids. Food is formed into a bolus by the tongue, and that's swallowed. Next up is the pharynx. If you got a COVID-19 test, you most likely got a nasopharyngeal testing, which means they go up your nose and touch your pharynx. The nasopharynx is behind the nasal cavity, the oropharynx is at the back of the mouth, and the laryngopharynx is above the vocal cords. The oropharynx has these muscles called the upper esophageal sphincter. They're the ones that initiate swallowing. So just a heads up, a sphincter is like a gate into the next level of the digestive system. So when you hear sphincter, just think like, all right, this is the transition into the next part. So the middle part of the pharynx is the oropharynx. That's the one that houses the upper esophageal sphincter. Now, there's the larynx as well, but that's for breathing. So when I go to the respiratory system next episode, I will follow a pathway through the larynx. But for now, I'm going to continue down the larynx. After the pharynx and the upper esophageal sphincter is the esophagus. This is a muscular tube that connects the pharynx to the stomach. The top one third of the esophagus is voluntary. It's somatic. It's skeletal muscle. The bottom one third is involuntary. It's autonomic. It's smooth muscle. And the middle one third is a mix of both. So in the esophagus, you get a smooth transition from skeletal to smooth muscle. Now, remember earlier when I talked about the enteric nervous system and that rhythmic contraction, a.k.a. peristalsis? Well, that starts in the esophagus. The rhythmic contraction that propels food downwards helps with digestion. And emesis, a.k.a. vomiting, is the opposite of this. It's when you propel food upwards. So when you all go out to bars or clubs and celebrate your MCAT being over, emesis is what happens at the end of the night. And with the pharynx, we talked about that muscle called the upper esophageal sphincter that initiates swallowing. Well, the esophagus has a lower esophageal sphincter, and that lets the food enter the stomach. 
So the names of these sphincters are pretty easy to understand here, and if you think of them as gates, their function isn't too hard to grasp. So the stomach is where digestion really starts. Sure, yeah, the amylase and lipase and saliva help break down starches and lipids, but the true start of digestion happens in the stomach. I mean, proteins haven't even been touched by enzymes until they get down there. The stomach has a capacity of 2 liters, and it's super muscular, which allows for a lot of churning. They throw in some HCL and some enzymes and the digestion gets moving, but because there's such active digestion going on in the stomach, they have this really thick mucosa covering the walls so the stomach doesn't digest itself. It's pretty hardcore. The acidic stomach environment is the GOAT because it's why the 5 second rule exists. The acidic environment kills microbes, denatures proteins, activates pepsin, and can break down some intracellular bonds. Now heads up. I'm going to get down to the nitty gritty with the stomach right here. The stomach has two groups and they have two things in each group. The first group are the gastric glands. They're in the fundus and the body. The second group are the pyloric glands. Those are in the antrum and the pylorus. So those are all different parts of the stomach. The gastric glands are at the top half of the stomach. The pyloric glands are at the end of the stomach. And this is easy to understand because G comes before P in the alphabet. So gastric glands are present before pyloric glands in the stomach. So the first group are the gastric glands, aka the fundus and the body, and they got a lot going on. So the gastric glands respond to signals from the vagus nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system and get activated with taste, sight, or smell of food. The gastric glands have three different cell types, the mucus cells, the chief cells, and the parietal cells. The mucus cells make a bicarbonate-rich mucus that protects the stomach lining from the harsh acidic environment. Remember I just talked about that thick mucosa protecting the stomach? The mucus cells make that. Just make sure you know mucus is bicarbonate-rich, and we can break down that logically because bicarbonate is to neutralize acid. The chief cells make pepsinogen. That's the inactive form of pepsin. So when you hit a certain super acidic pH, you get pepsin, which is a proteolytic enzyme. It digests proteins by cleaving the peptide bonds. It can do this anywhere, but it prefers aromatic amino acids. So just remember those are tryptophan, phenylalanine, and tyrosine. So pepsin is the active form and prefers aromatic amino acids. I can also see a test question being asked where, you know, they ask which amino acid gets preferentially digested by pepsin. And at that point, you'd have to just be aware they want you to choose an aromatic amino acid. The chief cells don't actually make the pepsin, they make pepsinogen, which I said was the inactive form of pepsin. If something is produced as the inactive enzyme that becomes an active enzyme, we call the inactive version the zymogen. And the parietal cells are the last of the three cells of the gastric glands. They basically secrete hydrogen ions as HCl to activate the pepsin. And the parietal cells are the stars of the show. So lots to unpack in that sentence. First, they secrete hydrogen ions as HCl. So basically, you got to know that parietal cells make HCl. But the reason they do that is to make hydrogen ions. And those ions make the whole stomach really acidic. The acidity in the stomach is the key in transforming that pepsinogen that chief cells make into something productive, the pepsin. The parietal cells have the secondary function of secreting intrinsic factor, a glycoprotein that is needed to absorb vitamin B12. So parietal cells make two things. They make stomach acid as well as making intrinsic factor. So we can absorb vitamin B12, which is super abundant in things like beef liver. 
So when people mention gastric juice, you know, like an everyday conversation, when people are just talking about gastric juice, they're talking about chief and parietal cells. Although the gastric glands are made of mucus cells, chief cells, and parietal cells, it's the parietal cells and chief cells that are gastric juice. And so that's gastric glands. The pyloric glands are way simpler. The pyloric glands, they have G cells that secrete gastrin. Gastrin stimulates cells called parietal cells to make more HCL and signals the stomach to contract so the contents mix well. So the antrum and the pylorus do that. They're basically hype men that tell the parietal cells to make the stomach more acidic. And with the stomach, the last thing I'm going to talk about is chyme. Chyme is basically a smoothie of broken down food and gastric juice, kind of nasty, honestly. But chyme is awesome because it increases the surface area and allows the maximum absorption of ingredients before we head to our last spot in this main process we got, which is the small intestine. All right, so we really went from kind of basic anatomy for each part of the digestive system to super in-depth with the stomach. So let me just take you through that one more time. So the stomach is the first to do a lot of digestion, and it's super muscular. It uses acid in the form of HCL to digest food, but uses mucosa to protect itself from the acid. The stomach has four divisions you got to know about. The two in the top half are the fundus and the body, and the two in the bottom half are the antrum and the pylorus. Each one has their own glands, gastric glands for the top half and pyloric glands for the bottom half. The gastric glands are first. They have mucus cells, chief cells, and parietal cells. The mucus cells help make that mucus coating for the stomach. The chief cells make pepsinogen, which is the inactive form of pepsin, and the parietal cells make HCL, which helps make the stomach acidic, which helps form that pepsin from the pepsinogen. The pyloric glands have G cells. G cells make gastrin. Gastrin hypes up the parietal cells to make more acid, and that's basically it. Pyloric glands are pretty easy. All right, so we move on to the small intestine with the duodenum. So before we start, just know the parts of the small intestine are the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. The duodenum is responsible for chemical digestion and has some involvement with absorption as well, but most of the absorption happens in the jejunum and the ileum. The duodenum gets all the food from the stomach through the pyloric sphincter. And remember the pyloric glands with the G cells? Yeah, the sphincter is from that part as well. So food leaves through the pyloric sphincter and the chyme, aka that liquidy acidic mixture we made in the stomach, goes ahead and activates the release of brush border enzymes in the duodenum. So the stomach broke foods that were in chains of hundreds of units into units of two or three. The brush border enzymes are in charge of breaking down those units of two or three into monomers, units of one, things that can be absorbed. The brush border enzymes are disaccharides and peptidases. If you hear saccharide, you know it has to do with carbohydrates. If you hear peptidase, you know it has to do with protein. So the duodenum is basically grinding these carbohydrates and proteins into a super fine powder. The duodenum of the small intestine also has enteropeptidase. This has the cool job of activating the sleeping beast, the pancreas. Enteropeptidase grabs the trypsinogen from the pancreas and converts it to trypsin, which is used to cut through proteins. The duodenum has a lot of fun throwing some other enzymes in the mix like secretin and cholecystokinine, and it gets that going. Secretin is a peptide hormone that causes liver and pancreatic enzymes to be released into the duodenum, and you might be like, why are pancreatic enzymes being released into the small intestine? Well, the pancreas is the homie that tells the stomach they're going a little too far sometimes. In this case, they help level out those pH levels and keep everything where it needs to be. So remember, the parietal cells in the stomach were pumping out HCL like crazy, while the secretin makes sure it's not too crazy. 
It regulates the pH of the digestive tract, and it does so by increasing bicarbonate secretion from the pancreas. So you might have noticed something here. When the stomach was protecting itself from the acid it was making, the mucus cells were making bicarbonate. When secretin wants to regulate the pH of the digestive tract, it also releases bicarbonate ions. And bicarbonate ions help make the environment more basic. And when we have intense acids like HCl being thrown around, we put the bicarbonate in at times to make things level. The secretin reduces HCl secretion and increases bicarbonate secretion from the pancreas, but it also throws in enterogastrone. Enterogastrone is the slow-mo juice. Enterogastrone chills everything out, slows the speed through the digestive tract, and allows digestive enzymes to act. And it mostly does that so we can absorb fat. So I said the small intestine throws secretin in, and I also mentioned cholecystokinin. Cholecystokinin, aka CCK, is secreted when the chyme rolls down from the stomach. And the CCK starts the release of pancreatic juices, but it also helps you know, have that full feeling, the feeling of, dang, I'm really stuffed. That's all thanks to CCK. All right, and the last addition of the duodenum are bile salts and pancreatic juices. Bile salts are basically derivatives of cholesterol. They don't perform any chemical digestion themselves. Think of them as kind of like a translator. They have a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic region, and they act as a bridge between the lipid environment and the aqueous environments. The main thing they do is act as this bridge, and they emulsify fats and cholesterol into micelles. Basically, bile salts are focused on lipids. And the pancreatic juices are this complex mixture of enzymes in an alkaline solution. We've talked about pancreatic juices a bit earlier with trypsin, secretin, and cholecystokinin. But yeah, pancreatic juices tell the stomach to chill out and get the pH from acidic to basic. So the pH of around 8.5 is the preferred pH of this part of town. Pancreatic juices do it all. They break down carbs, fats, proteins. They're awesome. All right, so honestly, I think the small intestine is even more complicated than the stomach. So let me just go through that again. The small intestine has the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum in that order. So the duodenum has to do with the breakdown of food. So we're focused on only that for now. Food comes in as chyme, which is the liquid acidic mixture. And that brings out a whole host of enzymes. We got the brush border enzymes. These help crush the food into really fine powder breaking down dimers and trimers into monomers to be absorbed. We have enteropeptidase, which activates other digestive enzymes from accessory organs like the pancreas, specifically trypsin. We got secretin, which causes pancreatic enzymes to get released to even out the pH. And secretin also comes in and gives you enterogastrone, aka the slow-mo juice that slows down the speed of the digestive tract. We had cholecystokinin, aka CCK, which is made to tell your brain that you're full, as well as secrete pancreatic juices, just like secretin releases pancreatic enzymes. Then we had bile salts, which are translators. Bile salts help as the bridge between lipid and aqueous environments. Without bile salts, fats would just get excluded from the solution we just made, and they'd be inaccessible to pancreatic lipase. And pancreatic juices in general are just this mix of enzymes in a basic solution. They neutralize the chyme and make a nice, cushy, basic environment for all the enzymes to do their thing. They help break down all the nutrients. All right, so I keep talking about pancreatic juices. Let's get into the details about the pancreas. So straight up, the pancreatic juices are a bicarbonate-rich solution that have enzymes to break down the three major nutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. So they're basic and they help with everything. Pancreatic amylase is used to make those big polysaccharides into smaller disaccharides. 
we break chains of hundreds into chains of two or three with amylases. Pancreatic peptidases are like trypsinogen, chymotrypsinogen, and procarboxypeptidases A and B. So all of those names are in zymogen form. Once they get activated, they start breaking down proteins. We also talked about the HOMI enteropeptidase, and we touched on how that activates trypsinogen to trypsin, but it actually activates all the pancreatic peptidases. So yeah, just know that there are pancreatic peptidases that travel to the duodenum, and the enteropeptidase finishes the job by activating them and letting them go ham on the proteins. But enteropeptidase is most associated with trypsin. So these pancreatic juices are made by acinar cells and travel to the duodenum through some ducts. The whole concept of making and shipping out pancreatic juices is called the exocrine function. Why? Well, we have endocrine and exocrine functions. Exocrine are when they help other organs out, exo, exit. Endocrine functions are used for the pancreas itself. So the pancreas exports as well as uses its own goods. So the other function of the pancreas is the endocrine function. Endocrine functions use insulin, glucagon, and somatostatin made from the eyelids of Langerhans. And we'll touch on that in the endocrine system section. And that really sums up the pancreas. It's an accessory organ to the main path of food, but it's an important one. Now the liver, the liver is key to digestion. They're well connected and have bile ducts that are pathways to the small intestine and the gallbladder. We talked about bile salts before. Remember the translators that emulsify fats into my cells? Well, bile is made in the liver and it has two pathways. Either it can be stored in the gallbladder or it can be secreted into the small intestine like we talked about before. Now, a huge important factor of the liver is the hepatic portal vein. And remember, portals are rare. The hepatic portal vein is one of the only three portal systems in the body. There's another in the kidneys and one in the brain, and that's it. So what does the hepatic portal vein do? Well, its point is to bring nutrient-rich blood to the liver and then to the inferior vena cava. So we got a ton of nutrients. The liver sees the sugar and goes perfect. This will be glycerol and sees the fats and goes perfect. This is going to be triglycerols. So the liver stores that extra glycogen and through two processes which you learn in biochem, glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis, the glycogen gets broken down and then built into glucose whenever the body needs it. Another big thing the liver does is detoxification. The liver detoxes stuff in your body, so the scraps from your body's constant cell turnover, as well as the stuff you consume from outside of your body. If you're drinking post-MCAT, thank your liver for breaking all that down. The liver does a lot of things. Well, one of those things is it helps make bile from broken down hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is what carries oxygen into red blood cells. So when that hemoglobin is broken down, it produces bilirubin as a byproduct. Bilirubin is the body's waste product of heme turnover. The liver snags that bilirubin and figured out a function for it. Bilirubin becomes a major pigment in bile and the liver conjugates bilirubin and secretes it into bile. This heme breakdown product, bilirubin, then gets thrown out in your feces. So talking about bilirubin, you have to talk about jaundice. What is jaundice? Jaundice is when the liver isn't really able to handle the bilirubin and an excess builds up. So a bad liver can make you basically unable to clear out that bilirubin through bile. So it just keeps stacking up in your body until symptoms come and you start getting things like yellow tint in your eyes, yellow skin, and more. Finally, the liver, it also synthesizes proteins, proteins like albumin, which maintains plasma oncotic pressure and carries a lot of drugs and hormones, as well as clotting factors, something I talked about in an earlier episode. And of course, 
clotting factors are used for blood coagulation. The last accessory organ for breakdown I'm going to talk about is the gallbladder. The gallbladder stores and concentrates bile. So when CCK is sent out, CCK being the enzyme that tells you you're full, the gallbladder contracts and squeezes some bile out. The bile joins up at the pancreatic duct and then they enter the duodenum together. Now let's move on to absorption finally. These are where the other two parts of the small intestine shine. The hard work has been done, you know, breaking everything down, so now the digestive system can feast. The jejunum and the ileum are involved in the absorption of nutrients. Remember, the small intestine is the duodenum, jejunum, and ileum. So the latter two-thirds of the small intestine is all about absorption. The jejunum and the ileum have these things called villi. Villi lines the walls of the small intestine and with microvilli are able to absorb nutrients. Each villi has a capillary bed that goes straight to the bloodstream, and it's for anything that fits with the bloodstream vibe, so things that are water-soluble. But for fats, that goes through the lacteal, and the lacteal throws them into the lymphocytic system. Now, with absorption, context is really important. Let's take carbohydrates, for example. When you're inside the small intestine, it's like a room of tons of carbohydrates all packed together, moving from the lumen to the epithelial cells, the villi. We have to use secondary active transport as well as facilitated diffusion. Simple sugars like glucose, galactose, and fructose and amino acids are absorbed into the epithelial cells through secondary active transport and facilitated diffusion. Once they're at the epithelial cells though, there's a concentration gradient with the capillary. The bed that gets exposed in the capillary doesn't have any of the nutrients that the villi have. There's all this blood that's empty of nutrients and all these villi that are rich in nutrients so we can just go from the villi to the capillary bed through simple diffusion. Once the capillary absorbs the nutrients, they make a beeline for the liver through the liver highway, aka the hepatic portal system, and yeah, so you just start absorbing all those nutrients. So with absorbing fats, the really small fatty acids, they actually do the same things that carbs and amino acids do. They go and directly diffuse into the capillaries. Since they're so small, they can actually easily just go through cell membranes. But the big fats, those have to get repackaged as triglycerides. So the big fats are packaged into chylomicrons and go through the lacteals into the lymphatic circulation. Lacteals finally converge with venous circulation all the way at the thoracic duct. But those aren't the only ones that dissolve into chylomicrons. Fat-soluble vitamins do too. Fat-soluble vitamins are K, A, D, and E. You can find a ton of mnemonics for fat-soluble vitamins, but Cade is fat is a really popular one. Cade, like the four fat-soluble vitamins, K-A-D-E. I mean, Cade could just be big bone, though. Who knows? I don't know why we're hating on Cade, but Cade is fat are the fat-soluble vitamins. Finally, we got the large intestine, and that is not nearly as complicated as the small intestine. Whereas the small intestine is obsessed with all those nutrients, the large intestine just wants water. It has three parts the cecum, the colon, and the rectum. The cecum gets fluid from the small intestine through the ileocecal valve, and that makes sense, right? The last part of the small intestine is the ileum, and the first part of the large intestine is the cecum, so the ileocecal valve. The second part, the colon, absorbs water and salts. It concentrates the undigested material into feces. And the last part is the rectum, and that's where feces are stored. Feces are the indigestible material water, and bacteria. Finally, we have the anus where waste is eliminated and there are two sphincters here, the internal and external anal sphincter. 
The external is the only voluntary one. Many mistakes have been made through history because of the lack of control of the external sphincter. What's crazy is that 30% of dry matter in feces is bacteria. We have a nice symbiotic relationship with bacteria. The bacteria get a nice steady source of food and they make byproducts of digestion like vitamin K and B7, which we like. So boom, digestion is done right there. Now the digestive system definitely has some crazy enzymes you have to remember, and that is truly the hardest part. I mean, everything else is pretty manageable. Practice makes perfect. Listen to this podcast a few times, write it down, read it in a textbook, watch a video, do whatever you got to do to make it stick. And at this point, we'll go through a quick, you know, condensed summary. And if you like this podcast, if you like what I'm doing, just go ahead and rate it, subscribe, all that jazz. It helps me out, helps the podcast out, all that. So like I said, quick summary, lots of different terms that are mentioned here. So try to hold on. So we started everything with the different forms of digestion. We basically simplified it into mechanical versus chemical and extracellular versus intracellular. Mechanical is like chewing, breaking things down into smaller pieces. Chemical digestion is enzymatically cleaving bonds. And then we talked about extracellular versus intracellular. Extracellular digestion is through the lumen of the alimentary canal and it's taking nutrients from food. Intracellular digestion takes place in the cytoplasm and that's more like oxidizing glucose and fatty acids. We use the mnemonic ordinary people eat sugary sweets to get a bearing of the digestive system. Oral cavities O, pharynx is P, esophagus is E, stomach is S, and small intestine S. Ordinary people eat sugary sweets. We talked about the oral cavity, how it mechanically and chemically digests with amylase and lipase, but notice there's no protease there. And then we talked about the pharynx, you know, it being split into three different categories, the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, and the laryngopharynx. The upper esophageal sphincter is in the oropharynx, and it initiates swallowing. With the esophagus, we talked about how it's a mix of skeletal and smooth muscle, skeletal first, smooth second. Just remember that the upper esophageal sphincter is in the middle part of the pharynx. So I said there's the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, and the laryngopharynx. And you'd assume since the upper esophageal sphincter is moving to the next part of the digestive system, it'd be at the end. But the upper esophageal sphincter is actually situated in the oropharynx. Then we got into the stomach and the different glands. The gastric glands are in the top half and the pyloric glands are in the bottom half. The gastric glands respond to the vagus nerve that means they respond to the parasympathetic nervous system. There's three types of cells in the top half, aka the gastric glands. Remember, those are mucus cells, chief cells, and parietal cells. The mucus cells make bicarbonate-rich mucus. Chief cells make pepsinogen, and parietal cells make HCL and intrinsic factor. The pyloric glands are simple. They have G cells, and they make gastrin, which tells parietal cells to make more HCL. All right, the next part of the small intestine has three parts, the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. The duodenum is still in that digesting phase, so it's, you know, squatting up with the stomach, the esophagus, and the oral cavity, and the pharynx, and all that. The jejunum and the ileum, they're all about absorption, and they're kind of the same squad as the large intestine. The duodenum has brush border enzymes that help go from trimers into monomers, and we have enteropeptidase, which activates other digestive enzymes like trypsin. We have secretin, which causes pancreatic enzyme release to increase the pH, and we know increasing the pH means it's getting more basic. And we have enterogastrone, which slows everything down. 
We got CCK, which tells you that you're full, but it also secretes pancreatic juices. And then we have bile salts, which help emulsify fats and let pancreatic lipase access them. So that's the duodenum. And while we're on it with breaking down food and nutrients, let's talk about the pancreas, the liver, and the gallbladder before we continue with the second two parts of the small intestine. So the pancreatic juices is just bicarbonate-rich solution, and it breaks down everything, carbs, protein, fats, it doesn't really care. The pancreatic juices are made by acinar cells, and they travel to the duodenum. The liver, it's super well-connected and has tons of important tasks. The main highlight of the liver is the hepatic portal vein, which drains to the inferior vena cava. The hepatic portal vein brings nutrient-rich blood to the liver, and it brings it from the small intestine. So, you know, you're absorbing all those nutrients of the food you ate. The hepatic portal vein is basically what brings it to the liver. The liver processes those nutrients, and the blood goes into the inferior vena cava back to the heart. The liver also detoxifies, and I guarantee everyone has heard a joke associating livers with alcohol, so that function isn't too hard to understand. One thing to know is that liver snags bilirubin and throws it into bile, but when the liver is messed up, it can't efficiently do that. The bilirubin naturally has a yellow color, so when it gets to a really high amount, you can see that yellowness in places like the patient's skin or eyes. The gallbladder we talked about stores and concentrates bile, so when you're fasting, the gallbladder is full of bile. When you eat, the bile leaves the gallbladder to help digest the meal. The gallbladder is homies with the pancreas. They enter the duodenum together every time. CCK is a hormone that tells the gallbladder to push that bile out into the intestine. So we're done with digestion there. Let's focus on the absorption part again. Absorption happens in the latter half of the small intestine and also the large intestine. The jejunum and the ileum are all about absorption. They have villi and microvilli that absorb nutrients. Big fats go through lacteals, but everything else, like simple sugars and amino acids, go through the epithelial cells using secondary active transport and into the capillary with simple diffusion. So you basically go from the lumen to the epithelial cells with secondary active transport, but then the epithelial cells to the capillary with simple diffusion. And then, of course, those nutrients, like I mentioned before, they use the hepatic portal vein to go to the liver. So the digestive system connects to the liver and the liver starts looking at the nutrients with a bit more focus. Fats, on the other hand, go through lacteals and converge at the thoracic duct and goes through the subclavian vein. But, you know, that might be too in-depth for the MCAT. Sadly, you're going to have to know every bit of that once you're in med school, though. Trust me. But who cares? Let's get through the MCAT first. All right, and lastly, we talked about the large intestine, and it's made of three parts, just like the small intestine, and those are the cecum, the colon, and the rectum. The colon absorbs water and salts, making them concentrated feces. The rectum goes ahead and stores the feces, and the anus is where waste is eliminated, but only the external sphincter is voluntary. All right, so that was a nice, you know, rapid summary of it all. If you enjoyed that episode, get yourself checked because enjoying learning for the MCAT is weird. No, I'm just joking. If you enjoyed that episode, I appreciate it. See you guys on the next episode, which will be respiratory system. Grow series signing off. Peace out, guys. Peace out, guys.